Well, good morning. Welcome to Campus House. My name is Rick. I'm one of the pastors here. If, uh, if you've been with us or if you're just joining us, we're doing a sermon series through the New Testament letter of 1 Peter. And I'll invite you to turn there. We're going to look at 1 Peter 2, chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. 1 Peter is towards the back of your Bible, if you're new to the Bible. Um, and I, but I want to introduce it before we read the actual text itself, uh, and I encourage you to look at it as we do so you can see for yourself what it says. Uh, I want to recap a moment of where we are. We're just in the third week of this series in First Peter, and what have we talked about these first two weeks? The first week, Rob talked about holy, uh, hope, and the next week, last week, he talked about holiness. And these are both crucial words within Scripture. They are crucial concepts within the Bible itself. Um, but do you ever struggle with those kinds of words? If you're familiar with them in the Scriptures, if you're familiar with them in the Bible, do you ever struggle with the words hope and holiness? Doesn't hope, it sometimes feels vague or maybe intangible because hope implies there's something out there you don't yet have but you're looking towards? But then it can feel vague or, or intangible here and now. Or holiness. Holiness is an important word, but we don't use it in common parlance today. And so as we're talking, we don't commonly say the word holiness. And sometimes we might think, well, holiness, that sounds antiquated and, if I'm honest, somewhat burdensome. To be holy, that sounds like a burden. And yet these are the first two things that Peter brings up in chapter 1 in his letter. Hope and holiness. And, and I wonder if if you're like me, sometimes you can struggle. How are these things connected? Peter seems to say these are integrated realities. They're crucial for the Christian life. But to you and I, they can sometimes seem distant or elusive. You know, it's for those of you who, who know about hope, you might say, look, I do have hope. I have hope that God loves me. Uh, and that means I can do a lot of things, whatever I want. You know, I can try to be a good person. But in general, you know, God forgives me. I have hope. I have a future. I have salvation. I have my ticket. He loves me no matter what. But sometimes for those of us who are so keen on hope, we, we sometimes exclude living towards holiness. We say, well, look, I have hope, so I, I don't know what to do with the holiness piece. And it gets excluded. But others of us, we really understand uh, the concepts of holiness. We say, you know what I do? I want the world to be a different and a better place. And that's a lot of what holiness is about. It's about living with great character in the world. And so you might say, look, I know God has commands for us and for me to obey. Uh, these things help us live and look like the holiness he's intended for us to have. But to be honest, it's really hard to be good or maybe perfect. Holiness seems to imply perfection. I don't have much hope that I can do it. So for those of us seeking to live towards holiness, to live good lives in the world, sometimes the burden of that makes us lose hope. You ever feel that way, one or the other, that if you have hope, you think, well, I don't need to, I don't know, working towards holiness kind of crushes my hope. If you have holiness and you're wanting to work towards holiness, sometimes it feels like a burden to your hope. Peter is trying to bring those things together in his letter. They don't exclude one another. They're actually to be integrated and brought together in our lives. Let me take this from another angle. Let's, let's do the opposite. Let's think of unholiness. What is unholiness actually? I want to define it as a strategy, a strategy for living our lives in such a way uh, that we, we don't produce what God intends in the world. And unholiness is a defense strategy, and I only use unholy, I, I use unholiness essentially because I don't have hope. Basically, unholiness is trying to get what I think I want or what I think I need apart from God. And in doing so, I often harm my neighbors, I harm my friends, I harm my family. And the reason I do that is because I don't trust. I don't have hope that what God says he'll give me will show up, so I try to get it now. Unholiness is my defense mechanisms. Unholiness are my strategies to get what I want right now because I don't trust that God's going to give me good things later or maybe even right now. Hope, on, in, a, in an opposite way, hope says, I'm looking forward to better things in the future, even if I don't have them currently, but I also have such security in my life that I don't need unholiness as a defense strategy. In fact, I've decided that holiness is hope lived today. 
holiness is essentially hope lived today. That's why they're so integrated, why they so need one another. You know, holy in the Bible means two things. It means first, set apart by God for God's use. And second, it means a set of actions and behaviors that emanate from a state of being like God, having the same character as God. So when you are holy, if you are holy, that means you are set apart to do the things that God intends you to do, and you are also living with the character that God has. So 1 Peter 2 is going to show us that God sets us apart for His purposes. He gives us a new purpose uh, so that we can be like Him. And that changes our relationship with all the other people around us. And really, ultimately, what we're seeing is, is we are spreading hope through our holiness. If we're truly living holiness out in our lives and in the world, we're actually spreading God's hope. (coughs) Holiness spreads hope if we're really living it that way. And what holiness says is, look, I am going to get rid of everything that gets in the way of my ability to display God's character and sincerely love others. Holiness says, look, Father, God, I offer up my thoughts, my attitudes, my actions, my behaviors, my motivations, my feelings. I offer these to you to make them holy. They are now set apart for your purposes. Conform them to your image, to your character, to your holiness, so that when I am acting or being or feeling or thinking in the world, these things that come out of me reflect you. That's what Peter is getting at. What he's saying is because Christians, as we'll see, have been given new birth into a new life, we must change the way we think and live in order to reflect the character of God our Father. Because Christians have been given a new birth into a new life, we must change the way we think and live in order to reflect His character, the character of God our Father. We can't treat others the way we used to when we see how God has honored us by sacrificing Himself in Christ, even when we were His enemies. The Bible says that we didn't love God that we didn't want him, that we didn't like his ways. And yet, instead of using our ways against us and doing the things that we did to him, to us, he instead offers us mercy. He gives us hope. And he says, I won't treat you the way that you have treated me or others. And so that is our hope. And now that we see it, we live holy lives. We don't treat others the same way we used to. So let me show you this from 1 Peter 2, verses 1 to 10, as Peter gives us three images that will help describe how we spiritually grow up into holiness and hope. So let's read this, chapter 2 of 1 Peter, verse 1 to 10. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house in order to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, And the one who trusts in him, that's Jesus, will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, or so the honor is for you who believe, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected became the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble, a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let me point out these three images that I think Peter is giving us in this passage. Uh, We're going to spend more time on the first one because the other two are connected and they'll help close out the first one. The first one, though, it says is spiritual milk. There's three things that say spiritual. So spiritual milk in verse 2, spiritual house in verse 5, and also in verse 5, spiritual sacrifices. 
he gives us these three, two of them are metaphors, uh, but he, he gives us these three images. And let's translate that and to say them in another way. Um, so how do we grow in hope and holiness? What we're going to see is that uh, the spiritual milk, spiritual house, spiritual sacrifices are related to our growth. And we grow through desiring God's word, through receiving God's honor, and through offering God's love. That's what the, the images are actually getting at. Desiring God's word, receiving God's honor, and offering God's love. Let me read verses 1 to 3 again, and then we'll jump into this. We grow through desiring God's word. As you come to, uh, therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up into your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Did you catch this, that we are to grow up? into our salvation. Did you know that salvation isn't just a ticket to heaven? It's like a train ticket. The, the conductor comes by, punches your card. Now you're good to go. One day you'll arrive there. God isn't just trying to promise you heaven or nice things, although those things are true. It's way more than that. Salvation is something that you grow up into. It's far more, he says, like being a newborn baby that grows up into an adult. That's what salvation is far more like than being like a ticket to heaven. He says you grow up, in verse 2, you grow up into your salvation. You know, about four or five years ago when uh, hashtag adulting was new, I was eating at a restaurant with some students and I ordered a salad for lunch and we were having lunch together and several of them said, oh, salad, hashtag adulting. I said, I had never heard it before, it's five years ago, and but just from the context, you could pick up what they meant. So I said, guys, I'm not, I'm not like playing at being an adult. I'm just, I'm eating a salad because it's actually just healthy for me. I'm not pretending or I'm not doing like this random adult thing once for lunch. And so I thought about it for a while and I went and looked up some, some uh, hashtag, hashtag adult on Twitter. And so here's some examples you might be familiar with. Doing laundry, dishes, and cleaning my bathroom, hashtag adulting. Just paid this month's bills on time, hashtag adulting. Decided I couldn't watch Netflix for eight hours straight and so went to the grocery store instead, hashtag adulting. I sure missed the days I didn't have to pay bills so that I could spend my money on anything and everything I want, hashtag adulting. Possibly my favorite quote on this comes out of Time Magazine where they were doing a, an article to try to explain, I think, to old people, what is adulting? And it said, to say that you are adulting is to, on some level, try to create distance between you and what are implied to be actual adults who are adulting 100% of the time and therefore have little reason to acknowledge it. Or if they do, they might instead use phrases like, going about my normal day. (laughs) What if there was something like hashtag Christianing? We're like, I'm not fully ready to, to do the responsibilities of being a Christian. Just like, I'm not always ready to do all the responsibilities that come with being an adult. Christianity, though, is less like adulting and a lot more like becoming an adult. There is to be no distance between our day-to-day life and following Jesus. Christianity isn't something you role-play at. Like showing up to church on Sundays a few times or, or being nice to your neighbor every once in a while or your coworker. There isn't such a thing as hashtag Christianing. There's just being a Christian. Someone who is so caught up in the hope and the holiness that God came to give us through his salvation. And how do you grow up into this salvation? So if you're supposed to grow up into it, and it's much more like a child or a baby growing into an adult, how do you grow up into it? Well, Peter tells us, he says in verse 2, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk. We are to long for or crave. That means greatly desire something because you need it. Babies crave milk not because it's just they're like, I think I'll have milk today. It's because they actually need it in order to grow. It's, it's a necessity, something they really need. Um, and so for us, we're saying, I, I crave what God has to give, which ultimately uh, in many ways is himself and then what he reveals himself, himself through the word. For some reason, this, this reminded me of this lady. I was in St. Louis, in the St. Louis Zoo. I used to live in St. Louis. And I was uh, walking through the zoo, and there was a lady. I think she had like 30 kids. I thought she was a teacher, but I think she was having a pretty rough day with those kids. And it was hot, and it was about lunchtime, and she seemed 
uh, to be pretty hungry. And at one point, she just shouted out. And I just happened to be walking by her. And right as she was shouting, like it's like our eyes locked. And she was in the middle of shouting, if I don't get a hot dog, I'm going to cut somebody. <laughs> and so I was looking around, and there were no hot dogs. And we had locked eyes. And I thought, she might cut me. So I ran <laughs> to the other side of the lions because I thought it was safer to be on that side. So I, she was just like glaring at me. And I'm like, I don't have hot dogs. I am sorry. And I ran the other way. But, you know, she's like, if I don't get a hot dog, I'm going to cut somebody. She is craving hot dogs, apparently. And she is so saying, I need this so badly. It's a life or death thing. That's the, kind of, that's the kind of mentality we're talking about in a way. Here, craving the things that God gives. Like, if I don't get it, I'm going to die. And he says it's spiritual milk. And this is how you grow up into your salvation, by being like newborn babies. So he's saying, as Christians, you're like new babies, and you need milk. You need to grow up into it. And if you've ever spent time around babies, you know they only have a few ways, mostly one, crying or screaming, to tell you that they crave something. And so what do, they, what do they need? Do they need their diaper change? Do they need to actually eat? Do they need to be held and loved? Well, they are craving those things, and they're going to let you know. And this is that kind of need. We need this so badly. It's like we, we want to let, uh, let God lead us into this. And he says we're newborn babies who need spiritual milk, the right kind of nourishment to grow up into our new life given by God. And Peter's been laying this out since chapter 1. If you remember, the new birth talk has been throughout chapter 1. So he, Peter, if we're looking through the, the whole lens of 1 Peter, and we're in chapter 2, we've already been talking about new birth. Those are the things you get hope and holiness from, new birth. Now he's saying, now that you've been born again, now you have a new birth, grow up into your new life. So 1 Peter 1, 3 and 4, right at the very beginning, said this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in his great mercy. He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. The Bible talks repeatedly, especially Jesus, about new birth. Jesus started talking about it in John chapter 3 when he tells this old successful man that he must be born again. And the man is very offended. And he says, how could you say that? I have a good life. I, I have a successful, good life. And Jesus is essentially saying, you know what it would be better for you to be? A baby who achieved nothing that you achieved, who has no status like you have, who isn't high-powered. It would actually be better for you to start your life over than it is for you to continue to think that you're spiritually okay with the life that you have. And so he, he's telling you, you, didn't, you can't achieve this. You didn't achieve your own. John 3, he tells the man, you didn't achieve your own birth. You were just born. You can't achieve salvation. You can't achieve spiritual birth. I do that. You have to be born again to a living hope. And he says that happens through the power of the resurrection in 1 Peter, the verses we just read in chapter 1. And you know what resurrection is getting at? It's saying, have you ever longed for in life for something to be redone, a redo, get a redo, get a new chance, something in your life to be undone, mistakes to be eradicated, and you get to start over? Well, what resurrection means is Jesus says, this isn't just getting to fix a few mistakes. I'm telling you that I can do the thing that no person can do, because when you die, you're gone. Who can undo death? And Jesus comes to say, the resurrection isn't just a redo on a few bad things in your life. It's a whole new life, the kind of life that conquers death. That's what he's coming to offer. That's why we need new birth, because currently the life that you and I have is a life that will die. Jesus comes to offer life that cannot die, that death cannot defeat. And so what he's telling us is to trust our lives to him to trust that through his resurrection we have a new kind of life that can't ultimately die. We've been born again to this new life. And now, if you're born again to that new life, you are newborn babies in that life. You have it, but it's new to you. And so you have to grow healthy and strong in this salvation you've received, this new life that you've been given. And the nourishment comes, as the context shows us, from the Word of God. The spiritual milk is really about the Word of God. If you go to the end of chapter 1, the whole end of chapter 1, says that you've been purified by, in verse 22, you've been purified by obeying the truth. And so now you've gained a sincere love for each other, loving one another deeply from the heart. For you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable. That means it can't end. 
Through the living and enduring Word of God. So how were you born again? The Word of God. And then how do you grow? It says this is the Word that's preached to you, and it's living and enduring. So you're born by the Word of God. So when someone told you what was in this Word, you received what, who Jesus is. Well, how do you grow in it? Well, you also receive again who Jesus is, and you grow up into the fuller things that are described here that, of what Jesus gave to you and I when we were born again. So we constantly need the Word of God. We were born by the Word. We grow by the Word. So that means we never outgrow what is in the Word of God. We grow up into the Word. The whole point of this is not to say, so you should crave sermons or you need to crave Bible studies per se. Those are really important things. We do those things here. One's happening right now, in case you're wondering. We are to crave what starts behind those experiences, though. What stands, rather, behind those experiences? God himself. It's God himself. I'm not standing here preaching because I thought it was a good idea. I stand here because God himself says, as the end of chapter 1 says, this is the message that was preached to you. You need to receive it. You need to receive not just the message, but the one who the message is about. The whole point is to crave God himself. He gave the new birth because he did the resurrection. He gives the new growth into the new life because he's the one who provides the milk. Right? If you've come to faith in Christ, it says at the end of chapter 2, uh, or chapter 2, verse 3, grow up into your salvation now that you have tasted the Lord is good. If you've come to faith in Christ, it's saying you've tasted the goodness of God in your conversion. You had an awakening where the Word of God revealed to you who Christ is. But you know there's more to be had than a taste. If you have tasted the goodness, it says, then grow up into it. If you've had a great meal, you don't just taste it once and say, boy, I hope I never have that again. That was delicious. <laughs> no, you want more of it. You want to have more of what's delicious, right? What more? You might wonder, though, what more of God can be had? Didn't he give salvation? Isn't that it? Salvation he gave us. That's the whole point. No. Well, it depends on whether you think of salvation like how God thinks of salvation. The more of the Lord to be had involves putting off all the things that stand in the way of the new life in Christ being worked out in your life now. In this passage, that's why verse 1 is there in this passage. Rid yourselves of malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. It's such a weird verse, right? At the end of chapter 1, it's all about the preaching of the Word of God and the message about Jesus. Then we have this verse about malice and envy and hypocrisy and slander. Then he says, grow up into salvation, spiritual milk, spiritual houses, spiritual sacrifices. Why is there this one random verse in there about getting rid of malice and envy and deceit? Here's the thing. Christ accomplished salvation for us ultimately on the cross. But then day after day, he calls us to maintain relationship with him so that he can apply salvation through, through us and in us daily. He accomplished salvation on the cross, but he applies it every single day of your life. You grow up into it. As Psalm 34 says, which Peter is referencing when he says, now that you've tasted the Lord is good. Another part of that psalm says, whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn from evil, do good, seek peace and pursue it. All this spiritual talk, this spiritual new life, this spiritual new birth, this spiritual milk, do you know what it results in? The way that we talk the way we turn from doing evil things and instead do good, the way that we seek peace and we pursue that with other people even at cost to ourselves. These spiritual realities become absolutely tangible realities, which is why I said earlier that hope is holy, or holiness is hope lived. If you have hope in this new life, then it works itself out into your life and other people start to see it. You are different. What we're getting at is ethical transformation of your personal life demonstrates that Christ saved you into new life. So I don't speak that way anymore. I don't talk that way. I don't do those things that I used to do. Those things are changed, not because that makes me acceptable to God. Rather, I give them to God because he's made me acceptable already. He's already given me the hope and the holiness. Now I get to live out of them. We live by the word of God. We grow by this word of God, which means we never outgrow our need to keep having this worked out in our lives. Let me, let me apply this 
uh, in two ways to those of you who might be, might be wondering about this. See, about change. Some of what we're talking about is ethical transformation. I become a different person. The way I use my words, the way I use my actions, the way I use my relationships, the way I engage in life becomes different becomes what God calls holy. But some of us aren't seeing the change we desire in ourselves. We, we know the change is good that God calls us to, but we don't see it because we're not really in the Word of God. And by that, I don't mean, hey, you're not doing enough private personal devotions, although those can be good. But what I mean is, are you in the Word of God the way this Word of God is coming at us today? And it's not as just a nice piece of some information about a God that's up there. Do you know that he said, crave pure spiritual milk? He didn't say, become more informed about pure spiritual milk. He said, crave it. It's got to become this longing within us. And so you're not really going to grow up into the Word because you're not really receiving it in that way. You think it's just some more information like a textbook that you've got to memorize a few things or know a few facts. That's not how it works. God came to, in the Word, give you Himself to put you into a relationship of transformation, not to just give you some nice facts about an ethereal, transcendent God who may be up there. That's not what He's doing. What we're seeing in 1 Peter is that this is about hope, which in turn shapes your holiness, which is about how you live. The Bible can't enact these changes in your life if you don't see it as God's everlasting, authoritative Word over everything all of your new life, not just some parts of your new life, or not just some parts of your life. If you see the Bible as God's ultimate story of hope for you, then you can change, because who really changes in life? The people who have real hope. Everybody else just stays stuck. But there's others of you who, yes, you are in the Word of God. You love the Word of God. You're centered on the hope that the Word of God brings and gives you. And you hope for deep relationship with God. You pray that His glorious kingdom would come and set all things right again, restore all that's wrong and all that's broken. And let me tell you that for some of you, you think, I'm not really changing or I'm not changing enough. And I want to tell you, you are changing. You are changing. The struggle that you have isn't that you, uh, isn't with the Word of God it's with the fact that you're not changing how you'd like. You are changing. God is changing you. Some of the way that you get changed and the way that God changes you is that he reveals all the false hopes and the fake holiness that you've been living out of the rest of your life before you knew him or before you knew who he really was. Or do you know how children get growing pains? So you're growing up into salvation. You know you're going to have growing pains as you grow up into salvation. Sometimes God's going to reveal that you still put a whole lot of hope in a lot of things that aren't him. And you're trusting those things to make your life better, which he calls unholiness. It's a strategy by which you are living and trying to get things into your life that he's promised he'll give, but maybe he's not doing it in the way that you hoped. Some of you really are changing and growing, but the change is actually the pain that you're experiencing. The pain is, man, why is that sin still in my life? I thought God was healing me of that. Why am I still struggling? Why do I still have questions and doubts? Sometimes I sit with people and I say, did you, did you care about that sin in your life seven months ago? I'm like, well, no, I don't know. I didn't even know it was there. Like, that's called growing up into salvation. God's mercy, by his mercy, he's revealed to you that there's something in your life that you've got to get rid of. Get rid of all malice or envy or deceit or lust or all the other lists of vices that the Bible lists. He's telling you it so that you can work with him to get rid of it. He wouldn't tell you if he didn't care. You are changing. You are growing. But sometimes it's slower or not in the way that you and I would like. Look, Peter means what he says. You really do have new life as a believer in Christ. That's why in the middle of this discussion about being born again and growing up into salvation and preaching God's word and becoming stones, he says, become living stones and spiritual, do spiritual sacrifices, be God's spiritual house. In the middle of that is that line about get rid of all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Let me, let me work that out for a moment. What are those things in the middle of this discussion about these new spiritual realities we have? What we're saying is because the Christian's new life is to reflect the character of our Heavenly Father, we have to get rid of all that other stuff. All the things that are opposed to what chapter 1 verse 22 calls sincere love for each other. 
this new spiritual life, we've said, is new birth that restores us to the life of God so that we can share in his holy life. However, that never is just about having a spiritual high with God. That always works itself out into the tangible realities. Restored relationship with God always results in restored relationships with people over time. We're working that new way of being out with people around us. And so what does this mean? Peter is listing things that hinder our Christian growth, unholy strategies for life, the ways that we talk, think, behave, and act towards other people that rather than build us into the spiritual house, he says in verse 5, actually disrupt that house. And so here's the context of these Christians. They are spread across Asia Minor, which essentially is northern Turkey and some other areas around there. This, the very first part of the letter says it's written to a bunch of people in those churches. They're young Christians, but they are being persecuted. So much of the letter to, in First Peter is about the early church being persecuted for their hope and their holiness, that other people said, that's a stupid hope and I hate how you live. And so they're persecuting the Christians. And what Peter is getting at is he's like, guys, there's enough persecution out there. Can we really persist in doing this to one another? There's enough out in the world. There's enough stuff online. There's enough bashing and hating. There's enough hate speech and ugliness. There's enough treating each other poorly. But this place, oh, if you're in the house of God, if you are his house, it's not just a place. It's the people are the house, he's saying now. Then everywhere we go, we're to live the hope and the holiness. And that changes us. The hope and the holiness lead us to become people of honor. That's actually what that whole thing in the stones and stuff is about and why Peter quotes three Old Testament passages that say that Jesus is the cornerstone. What he's telling us is there's two building projects that are possible in your life. One is with Jesus as the foundation and cornerstone and one is not. He says some people will stumble over Jesus and be like, I'm not building my life on that. But he says to them, they're just always stumbling. They won't hear the message, it says in verse 8. They stumble because they disobey the message. What was the message? Back in the end of chapter 1, the word that was preached to you. This Jesus came to give you new life. If you don't receive that, then what happens? You remain in the old life. So you just keep stumbling along in the hatred and the envy and the malice and the deceit. There's no options for us to get out of that world unless Jesus comes to change the world by giving us a new kind of life in the world. So he's telling us, you're either being built up in Christ or you're not. You're stumbling over it. There's only two ways. And what he's telling you when he says this, this is why I had to change it. If you're reading the NIV, I am too, but I had to change verse 7 because I was frustrated with how they translated it. It says, in, in the NIV it says, now to you who believe this stone is precious. That's true, but really it says, so the honor is for you who believe. And the word honor is so crucial because what it's saying is, you people who've received the salvation of Jesus, you have also received the honor of Jesus. And do you know that the Bible says all the time that because Jesus conquered sin and overcame death and resurrected from the grave, he was exalted to the throne of God. He is God. He has the highest status in the universe. And now he says, my honor is yours. To a people that dishonored and rejected me, I welcome and give honor to this is the same kind of thing as resurrection, right? It turns the whole world upside down. How could somebody who was rejected then go and honor to the highest degree the people who just dishonored him? Who does that? Only Jesus. Because you and I struggle with malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Malice is this desire to do evil or ill will towards somebody else. It's kind of this mean-spirited, vicious attitude uh, maybe we want to, basically what we're saying is, I want to get back at somebody. The opposite would be living with excellent character all the time in every social endeavor you're a part of. And if you think, man, malice, who uses the word malice these days? Is malice really in me? I say, look, malice is in me just when I watch the Premier League. I love watching soccer. So I'm watching the Premier League and someone comes in and does a dirty tackle on my, one of my favorite players. I'm like, somebody's got to get him back. That's not even my life. I'm glad no one can hear me through the TV because I'm yelling at the TV that someone should get him back. No, well, think about this. Do you have that in your personal life? That's just me watching a soccer game and malice comes out. 
How much more when somebody around me says something hurtful, hateful, something I dislike, they do something wrong to me? What's your first response? Sincere love turns away malice. It pushes it back and instead seeks to love enemies even and to do good to all. Deceit is lying. The action or practice of deceiving, concealing, or misrepresenting the truth. A person, the opposite of someone uh, who's deceitful is someone in whom there is nothing false. Can you imagine if we all walked through the world and we could look into each other's eyes every day and say, man, in you there is just nothing false. There is no misrepresentation ever. I never misrepresent on my social media feed. I never misrepresent in how I talk about myself or to others. I never misrepresent others when I talk about them. You know, sincere love rather than deceit is straight talk. It's honesty. It's loving the truth even when it costs me. Truth equals letting people in. If I'm going to actually be, truth is about honesty and about trust. Are we a church that can trust one another? With, with the things going on in our lives? Can we build trust over time, choosing to be honest about what's really going on inside of us, choose to handle our relationships honestly? Hypocrisy is pretty related to deceit. It's another form of dishonesty, but it's basically fakeness. Hypocrisy means putting on a mask, not letting people see what's really there. Essentially, my, uh, my attitudes, actions, and behaviors don't conform to what I actually say I believe or what I'm actually about. And so I create a public impression that's at odds with the real purposes or motivations of who I, who I actually am. So I'm play acting. I walk through the world as a play actor. People don't ever see the real me. I don't let them see it. I don't want them to see it. I misrepresent in that particular way. So we can get ourselves into trouble by faking it. We're essentially walking around being fake to one another. Isn't so much of our world built around that now? Now it's basically permanently embedded on the internet how much we can fake it. Or envy. Envy is this feeling of discontent, a resentful longing that's aroused by a quality or possession that somebody else has that you want and you actually wish that they were dispossessed of it so that you could have it. Her beauty, his talent. It's not just that I, I, if I was able to recognize them for having it, I would be grateful. I would say, wow, amazing, Lord, that you gave them that talent. Instead, I'm often like, I wish I had that talent and they didn't. Envy is this simultaneous admiration. I admire that person, actually, because of what they have. Also, I resent them because they have it and I want it. I want it for me. It's looking around at other people's lives and, and, and wanting those things for myself. This is, a, this is a strategy, right? If we actually act on that, if we build our lives on that, then it's an unholy strategy. It's a strategy for trying to make my life better than I think that it is. And what I'm saying is, I don't really have hope that I have enough. I don't have hope that that person can actually be better than me, and it doesn't threaten me. I'm not that insecure anymore if I have the hope and holiness of God. Otherwise, I always live in fear that my life will never be what I hope it will be. Jesus comes to turn that around, to give us something totally different. Let me uh, end this list with, this, with slander. What is that? I mean, slander can ultimately become a crime, but it's actually the, uh, it's an action of speaking falsely in a statement that damages another person's reputation. It's basically what some people might call character assassination. I'm out to make somebody else look bad, which is often a lie. Maybe I'm not fully representing them well. Um, and so I speak ill about them. It's defamation of character. Um, it's a really nasty insult when I speak um, to others about somebody's reputation, especially speaking what is untrue about their reputation. And I don't like telling this story, but I have to say that this shaped a huge part of my life in my mid-20s. Was I, I was dating someone. We were pretty serious. We dated for a while. Uh, but our relationship became ultimately very unhealthy, and we, we ended up breaking up. We talked about marriage and it was painful, and we, we broke it off and decided this wasn't a good place. She was going through especially a whole lot of difficult things, and so it, it needed some other, some other help. But the ending of the relationship was painful for both of us. 
And along the way, um, there was something that she wanted me to do that I said I won't do. I couldn't do, I couldn't help her in some way. And she was very upset at me because she needed it. She felt she needed this thing. And I said no. And I said that we couldn't do that and we aren't in a relationship anymore. We were already decided that. But she started going around and telling people in my church or telling people where I was in grad school um, false things about me. And I started to become afraid. Every day I'd go to school or I'd go to, uh, out in the community or I'd go to church and I'd think, who thinks they know something about me that's not true? Who hates me now? Some people started avoiding me. And what she ultimately told somebody, it escalated to the point where uh, she was told people that I had abused her, that I'd hit her. Uh, and, and so shortly right after that, I mean, the church intervened, and so we had to go and sit down and talk about that. And I was like, where are the bruises? Where are these? Where's the evidence of where she said I hit? And, and there wasn't any because I didn't actually do that. And it was incredibly painful to walk around thinking that people think, what a horrible human being you are. And the church, ultimately, as we worked through it, she said, okay, I was just really angry and I lied. I just wanted him to hurt. I mean, eventually, we tried to work towards some reconciliation there, and that was good. But for an entire year, I was walking around feeling that every day. And I can't tell you how every single day I wanted to get back at her. I wanted to be like, why are you guys listening to her? Here, let me tell you what she's done. And I was going to actually tell the truth. But every day when I'd pray, it was actually 1 Peter chapter 2 that helped me get into a different disposition where every day when I pray, the Lord would say, you will not go do what she has done to you. Do not bring more of that into the world because I have come to take that out of the world. Go and be merciful. Forgive. Part of the end of chapter 2 and we'll talk more about this in the next coming weeks, was this, it says about Jesus in chapter 2, if we just go a few verses down, verse 21, to all this, this story of hope and to holiness, to honor with God, you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit, no lies were found in his mouth. When people hurled insults at him as he went to the cross, he did not retaliate. The all-powerful God who could crush anybody in that moment didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats against the people who made him suffer. Instead, he entrusted himself to God and the Father who judges justly. Jesus did what we couldn't do and then set the example for what we now can do. This is why chapter 2, verse 1 says, get rid of. And the phrase get rid of, it, in Greek, it literally means take off that old set of clothes. And so what we're saying is take off that old clothing of malice. Take off that old clothing of interacting with each other with envy or deceit or lies. Take it off. Lay it aside. Rid yourself of it. Anything you have against someone else in the church or anywhere because you can't sincerely love them and hold on to your feelings of ill will. It can't be done. You can never sincerely love another human being and hold on to your feelings of ill will against them or try to manipulate them or tell lies to them or be fake to them or wish that they didn't have something so that you could have it. You can't talk badly about others in social media or with your mouth or even in your mind, right? You can't destroy someone's reputation and say, I have a sincere love for you. Brothers and sisters, that's not to be named among us. And when it is named, we're to say, can we help one another get rid of it? Let's take out the trash. It's time to put that in the garbage. Do you know that this act of is an act, these things, get rid of, just like taking off your clothes, essentially, is an act of surrender and vulnerability? To be naked, right? It's, there's something about that. And what we're saying is lay that aside. Get rid of it. And so it's an act of surrender because we're waving the white flag, giving up on our current tactics for living, our current way of relating that is harmful to our relationships. We give them up. We get rid of them. We lay them down. We get rid of all of our weapons by which we use to verbally attack one another. And instead, we say, Lord, these thoughts, feelings, attitudes, and behaviors nurture the ones that look like you. I've tasted that you are good to us. I want to grow up into that goodness. 
Nourish me with something entirely different. Don't let my mind fixate on the things that it used to. This desire to get back at people. And this is also vulnerable. See, Jesus surrendered his life to people who would kill him for loving them. And so he surrendered, but he's also vulnerable. And the word, just get rid of this, to lay it aside, means that as we lay these things aside, we become attackable because I'm not willing to leave up my defenses or to take you down with my attacks, which what does that mean for me? I have made myself attackable. And yet what I want to do is build trust with you so that you and I aren't worried about attacking each other or defending against each other. We are a part of a new community in Christ by the new birth that Jesus gave us into this new life in Christ by which we are growing up into this place where though we could be the most attacked, we are also the most loved with one another. That is what he is getting at. Friends, we need this so badly in our world. And that's what it means to be God's spiritual house and to offer spiritual offerings. What we're talking about is these are our offerings in the world now. We don't sacrifice animals. Jesus did the final sacrifice of himself. So what do we offer? We offer ourselves. Our way of being in the world is our spiritual offering. And if you are God's house, then you represent and you, you get to grow up into the character that he has. So before I hit send or tweet or post or snap, is it merciful? Before I speak or act, is it merciful? Does it represent the acceptance of God who accepted me when I was against him? So now I even accept and long for the restoration of others, even when they've worked and acted against me. This is what he means by the end of the passage, right? But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, acting as God's people in the world, priesthood, connecting God and people through these ways of being, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous, wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What is the antidote to malice and envy and deceit and hypocrisy and slander? It's mercy. It's to come before the living God who had every right to judge us for all the wrong that we've done and who instead judged himself, taking on the wrath for sin and instead replacing it with his mercy. That is so freeing. I don't have to try to get something from other people through these old ways of being because now I have everything through Christ who's given me a new way of being. I am now his in the world. Friends, I want to encourage you as we head towards communion, uh, as we think about this, to take out the trash in ourselves, essentially. The things that get in the way of our hope, of living our hope and acting in accordance with his holiness. Because the one thing we get to do now that's so important is we get to treat each other with the same honor that God has treated you with. And the honor he gave you is, you didn't deserve forgiveness, but oh, how I love to forgive you. Oh, how I love to bring mercy into your life, that you don't have to defend or attack any longer. You are mine. Let's pray. Father, what good news, what message you have for us through your word. We pray that you would help us to rid ourselves of these things. But most of all, it's because we are these newborn babies who are actually now able to grow and mature into our salvation because we've tasted that you are good. You are the kind of God who entered, and rece- entered the world so you could receive malice. You could be treated hypocritically. You were envied. People lied about you and to you. You were slandered. They spoke wrongly of you, and yet you did it so that we could receive your mercy. We rejoice in that, Lord. Thank you for this new life. Thank you that you have not rejected us. But with all the rejection in the world, you have come to receive us. We stand in your grace. We stand in your mercy. Lord, make it so among us as your people. In your name we pray. Amen. We're going to start passing communion now.
But just a, a word on what communion is and what we're doing today. I want to ask you to hold it when you receive it. We're going to take it together. Part of this whole spiritual house thing is that we are unity. We are united together. And so we want to hold on to communion so we can take it as one group of people together. And so as you do uh, receive communion, let me read the end of 1 Peter 2 as well, uh, the very last few verses. It's about Jesus, and it reminds us of what communion is. It says, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to our sins and live to His holiness. So what he's saying is when we take the bread, we're receiving the representation, remembering Jesus' body was broken for me so that I could break my sins and be free of them and live in the way that he intended for me to live. He made that possible. I celebrate that. If that's not your celebration, don't take communion. It won't help you. Instead, take the mercy of Christ who wants to receive you into that. And friends, I want to invite you to something Communion is about forgiveness. And sometimes we spend some time thinking individually and praying, and I would invite you to do that. I also want to invite you that if, if this is needed or necessary in your life, I'd invite you to get up and go take communion with somebody else in the room and maybe to even take communion with somebody that you need to forgive or that you need to go ask forgiveness from. Who do you need to forgive? Or is there anybody you're holding something against? Is there anybody who's holding something against you? Who needs to hear from you maybe that they are just so honored? They have the honor of God and you get to mediate that to them. Maybe pray for them right now and then get to go live that with them this week. We are a community together, so we are free to get up and to do these things even now or after the service because God has had mercy on us. Oh, to grace, how great a day.